This week, as I was getting ready to preach, um, just thinking about the sermon introduction, and there were a lot of stories that I could have used, and yet I came across one teacher who, he did this in his sermon. He asked uh, the folks in his church to imagine that they knew nothing about money, didn't even know what it was, didn't even understand how money was used. Didn't understand currency. Imagine you knew nothing about money today. And all we had to understand money was our Bible. The Word of God, which defines the world around us and tells us who God is and how we are to live. And this is where we're going to start in figuring out what this thing, money, what what wealth is and how it is to be used. And, And all we had is the Bible. And he said, by the time we got to the end of the Bible, we would be scared to death of money. We would treat money and wealth as if it were cancer. It wouldn't be something we desired so much of. We would understand how dangerous it is. Like a high-powered weapon that is, can be used for good that can be useful, that is necessary, that is needed, and yet only certain people need to have a lot of it because it's extremely dangerous and can ruin your life. And if we just went by what Jesus said about money, it would scare us. Money is the power for all kinds of immorality and debauchery. Money makes it, according to Jesus, Money makes it, wealth makes it harder to get into heaven. The more money, the more wealth you have, the harder it is to trust Christ and get to heaven. And money over and over causes us to deny Jesus. Money is dangerous. Wealth is dangerous. And the Bible is relentless in teaching us how to use our money in ways that glorify God and serve others. The Bible over and over warns us about a heart that does not want to use wealth for others to glorify God, how dangerous it is. And when Paul is writing to the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he ends this first letter by talking about the temptation of money. And he says in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 of 1 Timothy, he says, But to those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And he says this, Bible's not against wealth, it's not against money, but Paul says this to Timothy, for the love The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, the love of money, the desire to be rich, that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Wealth, money is dangerous, and you can lose your soul chasing it. But here's the tragic thing. As dangerous as wealth and money can be, I was thinking this week over 
20 plus years as a pastor, no one has ever met with me and said, I have a problem with greed. Not one person. Have you ever heard that in your BFG? I have a problem with greed and I need your help. Problems with all kinds of sin. Help me with my marriage. Help me with this addiction. Has anyone ever said, I have a problem chasing money and I am scared for my soul? James is serious about the issue of wealth. And it's something we must take seriously as Christians. Money isn't just this material thing that's over here that we use Monday through Saturday and then they twist my arm to give it on Sunday. It is a spiritual issue. Do you love Jesus or do you love money? Because Jesus would say you can't love both of us at the same time. You will either love money, mammon, stuff, or you will love me. And James is hardcore again. I keep thinking the next sermon is going to be easier to preach, and it's not. And I get to this moment in the sermon, and again, you're sounding like a jerk. It's not me. It's James. I, have, I can't wait to get to heaven and sit down and talk to him and say, that sermon series was really hard, and I made a lot of people upset. But James is after our hearts, and there is grace and mercy in uncovering this issue in our hearts. And he began uncovering it last week as he talked about the fact that life is uncertain and life is a vapor. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, and you're not eternal, and so you should plan accordingly. You should understand that you're not God. And this week, he, as he looks at the rich, he is saying to the church that there are a certain group of people in society that think they are God because they have wealth, because they have money. And I want you to listen as I address them because money isn't just your salary. It's not just what you have and what you do for, with it from the outside in, money is a heart issue. And the church needs to hear this rebuke to the wealthy in the community. And James goes from pastor, preacher here to Old Testament prophet as he addresses the issue of money. And it begins with a call to repentance. Notice verse one, he says, come now you rich, listen up. Those of you who have abundance, and here he is speaking probably to wealthy landowners in the community. And, and we've read in James that they've started attending church. They want to know what's going on there in this church in Jerusalem. What's this all about? And James says, when they show up, you can't be partial. You can't say he's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of power. You sit here. But he says to the rich, I'm going to talk to you personally. L listen to me. And, and his words are, Weep and howl. Now, that means to wail and moan. There's commands to weep and grieve with uncontrollable sounds. Like, a, like an injured animal out in the wilderness who is dying. You are to cry out, moan and wail and weep 
something has happened to you and something is going to happen to you that you can do nothing about and you are to cry out with despair. Now, here this is a call to repentance. Earlier in James, he uses the same kind of terminology when he says, be miserable about your sin. Understand the misery that your sin is causing. Face it head on. Understand the destruction that your sin is causing and cry out. And so to the rich here, he says, there's time for repentance, to weep and howl. And when he's talking about the rich here, he's talking about those who seek after wealth at the expense of others. They hoard to themselves and they take from others. And because of this, he says, there's misery that is going to come over you. Literally, it's going to wash you away. It's going to come on top of you and destroy you. And so before that happens, repent. Cry out with an understanding of your sin and the judgment you deserve for your sin and cry out in despair. Now, in 70 AD, Jerusalem was raised to the ground. And so the wealthy he's talking about here would actually lose everything that they own. And his point in the text is what good was it for you? The way you hoard it to yourself and the way you used others. Understand it now and repent of it. Now understand, he's addressing the rich with an earshot of the church. And so as he addresses them with intensity, he's also looking back at the church and saying, Check your heart, because a lot of you in church, you may not have the money these folks do, but you wish you did, and you envy their position of power. That's why you give them the chief seats at church. You wish you were more like them. So understand, there's judgment coming to them. Be careful. And I think it's important for us to understand, he's not just addressing the first century Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. Addressing the church as well. And I think it's important anytime money and wealth is addressed in the church that we don't immediately start thinking about what does that person make? What does that person have? Well, I don't have any money, so I, it can't be talking about me. It's always a heart issue, whether you have a little or a lot. It's where your treasure is. There your heart will be. And the reality is if you make $34,000 a year, you are in the top 3% of the richest in the world. And if you make $60,000, you are in the top 1%. The median annual income around the world, and we have to think globally, is just $2,800 a year. And the reality is, some of you, probably myself included, are paying for streaming services and apps on our phone that we've even forgotten about. And we remember every month, oh, there's that charge that would provide for a whole family in certain parts of the world for a whole year. And so everyone in here, and I know there are exceptions in our communities, in our culture, everyone in here is wealthy. And everyone in here benefits from the most affluent culture in human history. We live in the lap of luxury. You will go outside today and many of us will start our cars with a button. 
and sounds will come out of that car and begin speaking to you and showing you things on the dashboard. If Nebuchadnezzar, one of the richest men in the Bible, or Solomon, were riding home for church with you, they would think you are a witch for the things that are going on inside of your car. They would have never seen such technology. You live in the lap of luxury. We all do and we all benefit from it. There are enough barnwood charcuterie boards in this room today that would make a luxury pig pen in the village of Cordova. So understand, understand where you live and who we are. And we all must apply this to our lives. So now we can move on. Everybody got that, right? Verse two, we all must listen. We all must be warned by the witness of our wealth. Notice verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. The word rot means turn to putrid, septic and foul. The things that you own, your food, the excess food, they are so foul, they stink. And your garments are moth-eaten. Bugs have eaten through the things that you have valued, where where you have displayed your uh, appearance in what you wear. The word garment is for royalty, uh, the the, the clothes that royalty would wear. wear. And then verse 3, your gold and silver, those things that you would say they can't rust, They never lose their value. They only gain value. James says, they have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh with fire. Now what's important here is this word evidence. It it is though the rich stand before God in, in a court scene and they stand there before God and God is evaluating who they are and what they've done. And he says, your your excess surplus food, the things that you wore on earth, and, and the things that you said, gold and silver, they can't lose their value. Standing before God in judgment, they are useless. And they stand as your witness. Witness to what? What you gave your life over to. You gave your life over to the here and now. And so you collect it to yourself and you displayed your wealth and you invested in things that you thought would last forever because you thought the vapor of this life was eternal. And now you stand before God and you have invested in the wrong thing. And the things that you have invested in, he says, will eat your flesh like fire. He says, your stuff, your money will come alive and begin to consume you, destroy you meaning your greed will condemn you before God. It is as though you have gorged yourself on sugar all day, and then what happens? You begin to get sick, and you begin to vomit, and you wish you were dead. He says, because you have consumed yourself on the sugar of this world that doesn't last, when you stand before God, you will wish you were dead. Your stuff will condemn you. And notice he says, because you stored it, you hoarded it in the last days. This term last day refers to the time from the cross, resurrection, until Jesus would come again. And he says to them, instead of getting ready for Jesus to come again, you bought stock in the here and now. 
The resurrection declares he's coming again. It's time to get ready for Jesus to come again. But you act it as though this time period was eternal. And you invested in the here and now. And now you have nothing. You've lost it all. It is all loss at the end before God. It is useless before God. And so ask yourself the question, how much stock have you bought believing this vapor lasts forever? And now, I gotta have it now. This is all that matters now. If I have it now, I will be happy. And James says, when you stand before God, you will not be happy. Your stuff, the stuff you're investing in will declare, see, it was a waste. How much stock are you buying in the vapor? What will the story in your storage unit tell when you're gone? Or the two-car garage that you can't fit a car in? Not just the nice stuff, all the junk you've hoarded. Because you thought it would last forever and you gotta have it and you gotta keep it. You're investing in the temporal. What will the assets that are divided up by your kids tell us about your desires for the here and now? As folks walk through the yard sale or the auction, and they pick your stuff up, useless stuff, what will it tell about you? That you believe this is gonna last forever. And I gotta have this thing, whether it be a value or just I gotta have it now, it'll make me happy. What will the accumulation of stuff tell the world when you're gone? And what will it say when you stand before God? Where was your treasure? You see, James points to the end, but the stuff we have now should be warning us of what's coming. That new car smell fades quickly, doesn't it? It begins to smell like burritos and teenage boys to and forth from practice very quickly. What is that telling you? This doesn't last this fades, this goes away. Why am I giving myself over to it now? It doesn't last. Your stuff is witnessing something to you now that this world isn't eternal. It all depreciates. It all goes the way of the rotary phone, the eight track, the VHS, the iPod, and the flip phone. It all becomes useless before God. Understand that, that your stuff is telling you something about the here and now. Are you listening? James says, wake up and listen. But notice how they got their stuff, verse four. Behold the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud. He says, listen, the folks you owe money are also gonna tell something about you. The folks who mowed your fields, the folks who brought in your harvest, that which made you money, and yet you stole from them. You kept back. You didn't pay them for what they owed. The reality is the majority of Christians during this time were day laborers. Not many owned lands. Land and, and not many owned wealth. That's when we read in the Bible and we come across people with great wealth. It is to shock us when they are a Christian and how they use their stuff for the kingdom. In the book of Acts, we have business owners. We have those who own uh, Houses and they use them for the glory of God. And that is to shock us because there weren't many Christians who had a lot of wealth. 
And most of the Christians here were the day laborers in the field. And by the way, there wasn't a middle class. There was rich and there was poor. And the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. And when you became a Christian, it made things worse for you. You were treated unjustly, especially at work. You weren't paid for persecution. Also, you could just get away with not paying Christians. And now, those who worked for you are crying out against you. The cries of the harvester who, who brought in your produce, what you made money off of, the abundance. They have reached the ears, notice, of the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a scary name for God. It is the one who commands the armies of heaven. And in heaven, armies are armies of angels. And angels are scary. They're massive creatures. Galactic creatures who destroy things and wipe things out and wage war in the spiritual realm. And this is the one who will enact justice upon you. You frauded the day laborers, those who worked for you, and you held back money for them so you could become rich. Jesus and the army of heaven, the angelic warriors, they take it personally and they will come to collect payment for what you did not pay. This has scared them. Because this would have been common to cut corners, to do whatever you can to make more, and then just not to pay people so you could make more. And there is hope here that one day Jesus will make all things right. Christians in other countries who are suffering right now, who are hiding away because it is illegal to worship on this Lord's day, Jesus Christ will step in and make it right. And so James has given them hope to suffer with joy for Jesus. Jesus will make it right. But he's also warning us here that Jesus will also make right the desire to use others for your wealth. Do you, do you struggle with that? where you see the folks that you work with and the people around you, they are just tools for you to have more wealth and get more for your family. Do you struggle with that? James uncovers our hearts here. What, what will you do at the expense of others so that you can have more wealth? Do you give your employees less than they deserve? You know what they do is of more value. You know what they make you. And yet you hold back so you can have more. Do you give your employees less than what they deserve? Do you manipulate performance reviews because you know it will affect your salary? The folks under you, 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 you manipulate what it looked, the, the kind of work they do and their value to the company so you can get more. Because you know at the end of the year, that's what's going to happen. Is this person of value? Do you attempt to cut corners in goods and services to cheat customers so you can have more? Do you refuse to pay certain bills? You owe people certain things, but you refuse to pay those bills so you and your family can continue to splurge. What about them and their family? the money you owe them. Do you see how the desire is there? It's there, with, it's there for all of us. 
where we would use others to get more? Do you cheat your boss with your work? You know you could bless him in the company. You know you could do more and you could work harder. And yet you don't because your whole goal at work is to do less and get more. Because your boss is just a tool for you and your wealth. Do you see how it works out? James says, open your eyes and think about the way that you see other people. Those who work for you, those who you work with, and those who you work for. Money is a spiritual issue and it gets at our hearts and the way that we think about others. Examine your heart today. Do you use others for your personal wealth? Do you use them at their expense so that you can enjoy things, wealth? James says, beware of this. And then he says, beware of wealth because it gives you the power to indulge. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. So you have hoarded to yourself and your stuff is witnessing that. Then you used others for yourself, for your stuff, and you lived in luxury. The word luxury means soft living. It means to live in ease and comfort. And so you hoard to yourself, you treasure to yourself, and then you use others, you work them hard, pay them less, so you can live a soft life. And they are your slaves, they are your tools, and you live in self-indulgence. This just means to serve self, it can even mean to worship self. And so you use stuff and you used others to serve yourself, to worship yourself, And then he explains it even more here. He says, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. This is a powerful picture. Notice you have gorged your hearts. You have fattened your hearts, your desires in a day of slaughter. This this phrase, fatten your hearts, it means to give yourself over to every desire to make sure you get everything that you want to yourself. And that's the issue. The the heart of sinful wealth, that's the issue. Is are you using it for yourself or others? Is your desire for wealth just to get what you want and fatten the desires of your heart? James says, this is what you've done. Notice in a day of slaughter. This is an agriculture picture. You bring the cows in. To slaughter them. And so in the the day of slaughter, the, the, the cow that is worth the most is the fattest cow, right? And it's also the cow who gets to the barn first. That's odd and ironic, right? Because this is the cow who is constantly consuming, constantly eating, constantly beating everyone to the green pasture, and when, when the barn is open and it is time for slaughter, they think it's time to eat again. And what does this cow do? It rushes into the barn to be slaughtered. And James says that's a picture of what our desires do to us. 
I'm going to get what I want right now, no matter what, at the expense of others. And we gorge ourselves on our desires. And you know what those desires do? They serve self. And the more we serve self, the more we want to serve self. And we are being led down the path to the slaughterhouse, to destruction, to be left with nothing because we are giving ourselves over to our own desires. And he says here, wealth can be used to feast on those desires. You're not just longing for things that you don't have. You are able to get those things and enjoy those things and take pleasure in those things at the expense of others and alienating others. And so you can give yourself over to whatever you want. He says that's dangerous in the day of slaughter. Judgment is coming and all you care about is what you can consume. The day of the Lord here is what he's speaking about when Jesus will come and judge. And that is coming and we know it's coming. We live in the last days so we should be getting ready for that day. But all we care about is what we can consume. More of what we can have. Now the scary thing in our day with this desire in our heart is you actually don't have to have the money to consume what you want. You don't have to have the resources. The average credit card debt per person in our country is $5,000. Going back, that's, that's more than what some people around the world even have in a year, twice as much. The average credit card debt per household is 15000 in our country. And that, that, that tells us something, Right? And that, that's not even including all the other debt that we can accumulate. The money we don't have, but we can get what we want and feast on our desires. That, that surplus, I don't have the money for that, but I can go get it. And I can feast on that no matter what. We, we, we live in a country where shopping is considered Therapy. And it's a serious issue. When people are lonely and they're stressed and they're depressed, what do they want to do? Let's go shop. Let me search Amazon. Now, what is going on there? There's a desire in our heart that we think wealth and stuff can satisfy. And if I get that thing, if I just go walk around Dick's Sporting Goods and, and I can find something that'll make me happy today. I'll find something in her new pair of socks. And before long, it's a new pair of socks. It's this and this. And then the credit card bill comes in and you don't have the money for the things that you've gorged yourself on. We live in a time and place where we're going to get in our cars and say, where do you want to go to lunch? And you're not even going to think, do I have the money in the bank to do that? And we're going to have conversations with one another. Hopefully today, we got a problem. What is it? Eating out? You're talking about gluttony? No, it's not gluttony. I just like to eat out, and I don't know why. I just like the experience. It's going to fulfill some sort of desire in my heart. And we, we may not even have the money to do that, or we may have the money to do it. And James says at the end, it, it's going to be putrid. It's not even worth it. It's scary. And we 
live with this insatiable desire to keep up with everyone else. If folks can see that my kids, they only got an I, I, whatever, nine. Everybody else has got the 15, 16, 17. It's gonna be embarrassing for them to go to school with such a junky old iPhone. And we gotta get it. I don't have the money for it, but I'll get it. Or if they show up at practice with anything less than a $500 bat, people aren't going to think they're good at baseball. They, they only got the PS4. They need the PS6, 7, whatever's out now. I got to hide my watch now because it's still first generation. And what is going on there? There's this insatiable desire that there's something out there that I can get that's gonna make me happy. It's gonna make me accept it with others. And we fatten ourselves on that desire. And guess what? It doesn't make us happy. It makes us more miserable because we have to work to pay it off. And then we fall into the lie and the cycle over and over again. And James says, we are in the death spiral of consuming ourselves on the here and now. And you gotta wake up. You gotta wake up because the end is destruction. Notice verse six. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So where does this hoarding, where does this use of others, where does this hard issue of serving yourself, living in luxury, where does it, li- where does it lead to? He says, condemnation and murder. Now this happens in the court system. He's probably referring to Christians who have been taken to court and the rich have paid the judicial system so that they win And there have been Christians who have been killed. There have been people who've had money taken away from them and their children have died because they haven't been fed. He says, this is where it can lead. But I think when he says he does not resist you, he's giving nod to another moment. I think he's pointing to the cross here. And when we think about the cross, how did Jesus end up on the cross? There were religious rulers and wealthy folks in Jerusalem who loved their power. And what did they do? Their insatiable lust for power and wealth led them to kill the Messiah. And Jesus, notice the phrase there, he does not resist you. Jesus went to the cross like a sheep led to slaughter. He did not open his mouth. The one who had all power and all wealth and all authority closed his mouth and was allowed to be condemned and murdered. And I think James says that's how far this insatiable desire for stuff can lead you to denying and killing the Messiah. And we see it all the time, right? Beginning with Judas and 30 pieces of silver, his desire for more sold the Savior. And ever since then, we've seen it. False teachers, celebrity pastors, they sell their soul for power and money. And they deny Christ. Now you're saying here today, I would never deny Jesus because of money. Because of wealth. And whether, you're, whether you have a little or you have a lot, whatever it is today, I want you to think for just a moment about the most intense arguments that you've ever had. Maybe not for all of us, but for most of us, I would say money is involved somewhere, right? What are the most intense arguments in your marriage right now? What are they about? 
Danae hates it when I do this, but I have said the most hurtful things to her in our marriage over our finances. You see how dangerous it is? What do you worry the most about? What do you stress the most about? And and by the way, what do you lie the most about? There are hundreds of other things you wouldn't lie about. But when it comes to money, you're willing to fudge. You're willing to file that away. Nobody will ever know. The computer's processing that tax return anyway. Nobody's going to know. Do you see the danger in our hearts, the danger in my heart? You see how dangerous it is? It can even lead you to denying, killing the Messiah. The potential is there. So what does repentance look like? Well, back to Paul writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. The Bible isn't against money. Wealth itself isn't sinful. The misuse is. Selfish use is. But there is a redemptive way to use wealth and everyone in here, as we've said, is wealthy and has potential to use resources for the good of the gospel and Paul tells us how to do that. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, he says, as for the rich in this present age, it's the same thing he's talking about when James is talking about the last days, during this time, waiting for Christ, charge them not to be haughty nor set their hopes on the uncertainties of riches Don't be prideful about what you have and don't hope in the uncertainty of riches. Notice the phrase uncertainty of riches. They're not certain. It can all be taken away. And before God, you can't pay God off. The stock you put in your riches, don't hope in it. But on God, riches are to lead us to God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God gives us riches. God gives us wealth. And we have to live in the humility that everything we have is from Him. And notice the phrase, everything to enjoy. There is delight there, but the word is actually to be used. He gives us riches to use them. How? They are to do good, serve your community. You're to be rich in good works in the context of the church. You're to be generous and ready to share. If you are going to store and save, it is for the purpose of helping others. And he says this, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. And so there is a way to use wealth to store up for heaven. So it's not all bad. What God has given you in wealth, you are to leverage and use for the kingdom, not to store up here and now, but to invest in eternity. And first of all, it means you have to understand that the here and now is an eternity. There's something better coming, a good foundation so that they may take hold that which is truly life. And I think that's an important statement because we believe having wealth, having stuff is life. And Paul says, no, there's a better life coming. This is a blip on the screen and there is true life and enjoyment coming in the kingdom coming. Now this isn't some generic minimalism when it comes to wealth. This is leveraging it for the kingdom. And where does it start? By seeing the riches you have in Christ as enough. Now just consider this today. If you're in Christ, your sins have been forgiven and you're not going to hell because he endured hell for you. 
and you're covered in his righteousness and he's gonna raise you up from your casket and you're gonna rule and reign with him forever. Is that not enough? Is that, a not enough? Is that not enough for you? And so you start there saying, I have enough in Christ. And then you have the power and only then do you have the power to use your wealth for the good of the gospel. In all wealth that you have, you, you plan. I think it's good to plan. But when we talk about planning, we're not just talking about planning for the next 10 years. The Christian, because of the riches he has in Christ, is planning for the next 1 million years. And you may lose money in the next 10 years. But what you give and invest in eternity reaps dividends forever. And so you think that way about your possessions. And so you are free to live life and collect uh, what, what, on things that really matter and do, do not fade and do not rust. And I want to say something to you as you, you're planning. Many of you are thinking about retirement. You're thinking about leaving to your family. Why? You should do that, but why? Is it just so they can indulge? So, so they can be more sinful than you are on indulging on wealth? Or are you going to invest in the future to come so that they are set up and propelled for the sake of the gospel their whole life? You can do that. That's how you invest in eternity. This church was planted primarily through the funds of a woman who left nearly half a million dollars to Ashland Avenue Baptist Church. And she said, you cannot spend it on buildings. And so we haven't spent it on a building. But for the first five years, those funds were used, not all of them, primarily, so this church could be planted. That's investing in eternity. That's planning for eternity. And when you go to work, your mission is to bless others. You bless others while you're earning wealth, but you, you, your intention is to bless others with the wealth that you earn. That's how you go into work every day. The people around you aren't tools. You are the missionary going in there and I am working. I'm working. As I work, I'm going to bless others around me. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to serve this company. And then I, I reap the rewards of my service. And then I'm going to bless others even more. And you're constantly thinking about others as you work. Some of you need to work harder. And you need to make more. You're lazy. It doesn't honor God. And so you work hard to bless while you're earning and bless others with what you earn. And when you are glutted, fattened, your desires are fattened on the gospel, you don't live to display or chase luxury. You're not trying to make this place your home. You're trying to set your life up at all times so you can serve others and bless others and sacrifice for others. And wealth that at one time was the power for you to sin in whatever way you want it to becomes a platform for the gospel. Because people look in on your life and they say, well, they, they got a lot or they don't have a lot, but everything they have is used for the sake of others. And you're able to say, here's why. There is one who was rich and he became poor. There is one who was innocent in his riches and yet he endured the day of slaughter for my sin so that in him I might become rich. The reality is we know more 
than what's in the Bible about money. And the sad truth today is we also know so much about the gospel. And I wonder is what you know about the gospel, would that begin to affect all you know about wealth for the glory of God?